Listener supported. WNYC Studios. بحلب مدينتي. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My guests today are the filmmakers and subjects of the Oscar-nominated documentary For Sama. The film powerfully shows the bravery and idealism of Syrians who are fighting for political freedom. And it shows the depravity of the Assad regime. But much more than that, For Sama is a sad but hopeful story about starting a family as everything else you know and love is ripped away. In 2011, as the Syrian uprising got underway, For Sama co-director Wad Al-Khatib was in college in Aleppo. She was from a middle-class family and her fiancé's parents were living abroad. They could have gotten out, but chose not to. And then they were trapped. And then Wad was pregnant. She started filming everything. The protests, the shelling of her husband Hamza's hospital, even tea with friends under the constant threat of death. And as she films, her pregnancy becomes more and more apparent. Wad eventually gives birth and starts to raise her daughter, Sama, in a city under siege. After the family is finally forced to flee, she meets filmmaker Edward Watts in London. Together, they edit the film. Watts, Wad, and her husband, Dr. Hamza Al-Khatib, joined me at a live event at last year's Hamptons International Film Festival. I wanted to understand what would make educated people with access to comfortable lives be willing to risk everything to change their government. I will speak personally. We never felt proud that we are Syrian. Everything in Syria, since I grow up, it's all related to Assad family. The main thing that they always in the media trying to show the Syrian regime propaganda that Al-Assad, he's the doctor who was in Britain, and he's like... Uh, An ophthalmologist, and right? Yeah, and they were like this democratic family and all of that. While the reality is, all of our life when we were in school, half of Al-Assad, his father, we were calling him, the only words, that the immortal re- leader, that's it. And now, like all in, like before the revolution, before 2011, the country in all the media and the newspaper and everything, it's called Al-Assad Syria. It was nothing like surprising for us that the country was run by a dictatorship. Had they known democracy prior to the Assad family? Before Al-Assad family, yeah, there are a lot of political parties election for the the parliament member and all of that. But after Al-Assad, it's all become based on one party, which is Al-Ba'ath party, the same party that was also in Iraq, Saddam Hussein Ba'ath party. And then after that, just nobody became interested in politics because you know that it's just run by this family. It's run by this party. And the only thing, the only thing that I still remember my, my parents were telling me, like, mind your own business graduate from university and just please leave the country to like practice medicine in Germany or in the UK and just stay there. 
and don't talk anything about politics, like not even in, in, in the university, like don't dream to become like one of the like school membership. And is that the predominant mindset is when you can, you get out of here, you don't stay. Yeah, because you can't build your dreams in, in such a country, you know, you either part of the corrupted system to be like to get employed or you just leave. My, my parents lived in Saudi Arabia for 28 years. After immediately they graduated, they were both mathematics teachers, so they both graduated university and then traveled to Saudi Arabia, teaching there for 28 years to afford to buy a house. And their only advice, like, please, son, just, we did all of that for you to get to university, finish your school, and, and just come leave. to Saudi Arabia. Just leave. They want you to come, yeah. but you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Basically, after the, the revolution, which personally I didn't expect at all that it will start in Syria. Like, I didn't think that we will dare to stand against al-Assad. And when it started, we, we, we felt like we, this is our country, we belong here. And we have now a say in the future of this country. So everyone should participate. And then day by day, demonstration after demonstration, we personally, and I think a lot of other Syrians felt like as I said, we had a say here in this country, and it's now our responsibility to stay here till, till the end. Yeah, in 2011, I felt like yeah, I'm Syrian, and I'm proud of being Syrian, and I really want to stay and do what I want to do. And before even we knew each other, both of us has a different plan to go out. And like, as really many other people, we like canceled that and just stayed to do what we believe in. How did you connect? I was very passionate about what had been happening in Syria since the beginning because I, I felt that we'd never seen anything like it, to see people peacefully protesting in the way that they were and being met with a level of violence that was just unprecedented, I felt, since the Second World War. You know, we have this event in England called Bloody Sunday, which is like a huge stain when soldiers shot 10 protesters. And these guys were facing 10 Bloody Sundays every week, and they were still coming back and peacefully protesting and not resorting to violence. And so for years, I'd been saying, can we please make a film, not about ISIS and not about all those distractions, but about people like these two amazing guys, middle class, people just like us with our education who are asking for the things that we all take for granted. And so for years I've been saying that, but it was only after WAD left that people realized she came out after the tragic events you saw, came to London with these war-battered hard drives that literally bore the stains and wounds of war and said, look, what should we do with this? This huge pile of material. I came in to help her Craft the, film. craft the film. What kind of work were you doing before that? What kind of films were you making? I was making lots of films about troubled places around the world. I did, I did do one about ISIS, which was about the Yazidi women who'd been kidnapped and an amazing, brave group of people who were trying to help them escape from ISIS captivity. I'd been to Congo. I'd been to Afghanistan, Yemen. I'd been to a lot of difficult places. You love ba troubles always. <laughs> Basically trying to get people to see that people in these places are not some alien species. They're not barbarians. They are just like us. And we have something at stake in their fate around the world. We need to change the way that we look at the world. So it's not like us over here, we're okay and they're in trouble and, you know, it's a shame, but what the hell. We're all connected. And I think Syria, more than any other conflict, proves that. Yeah. <laughs> now... You meet with Edward after the fact, 
And so you're shooting. You're the. Uh, you're, you're. Are you the camera operator? And yeah, uh, I was the boss to myself. You were. You directed <laughs> yeah, yourself. Exactly. You're like the Orson Welles of Syria. Uh, uh, but but the. Um, so you're in Aleppo, and and the sense you get, of course, is that at any given moment you could be dead. Yeah. You personally, and your children, and your husband. At yeah. any given moment, the bombs are going to drop, and you're going to get hit, as as in other areas. Yeah, and re- this is one of the things why I kept filming and why I filmed everything. Why I was like very obsessed about like filming, even if we were asleep, <laughs> because I felt that any moment could be the last minute. And I'm here. I have that chance now to film this. And I will be killed. I will not do a film. And I wasn't really planning of oh, I, what I will do in the, all this material. I was like, yeah, I'm here now. I know that this is so important. I know if I've been killed, like this material will be something someone outside will use it one day. But what I need to do now, that just make sure that this person who will take this, this material will have a lot of like uh, plenty uh, choices to choose what story he wants now, to now do. Now, prior to 2011, I'm assuming the population of Aleppo was one thing and then it diminished considerably. And when you were in, in Aleppo, did you happen to live in an area that was less likely to get bombed? Like there was, were, there thing, were, there, were there things they were yeah. trying to bomb, like power stations and media stations? Were they trying to bomb certain targets and you were not in that area or were you just as vulnerable as everybody? We both from west part of Aleppo where it was under the regime control all the time. So in 2012, when uh, east part of Aleppo was announced that non-control area, which was under the Free Syrian Army, the people who carry weapon, so we moved to that area because that was uh, like a place out of the regime control. It was safe that the regime can't arrest you, but it's not safe because the regime started bombing. So we were living in that place. We knew that this is uh, now a free play area. There's uh, many people who came to this place to live because they don't want to live under the regime control anymore. And it was just a very strange life. Everything from zero, like there's no basic services, there's nothing. And that's why Hamza set up the hospital. So that place was just like a new um, city where there's really no one. And people start like, to come and start their new life in that place. Basically, I, like, I wish that we were vulnerable as the other people because the, the regime was just punishing everyone who's living there. They, he, the main purpose was to make life as like, impossible for, for the people. And like, this is what happened when you're living not under my control. But basically, the, we always know, and everyone, all the civilians knew that the hospitals are the main targets of the regime. The bakery too, the schools, every, every place where people can be like living normally or they want like some services, they were being like attacked more than any other place. So like I had some patients and I sometimes need to admit like a patient for, for five days at the hospital. He was telling me like, can you give me just the IV drugs and I will get him home? Like, you know, doctor, it's just difficult to live, <laughs> to stay five days in a, in a hospital, just dangerous. Sometimes like a mother will leave her children there and she said like, I trust you that you'll take care of him, but I will not stay here for like six days until the child will like discharge from, from the hospital. When we moved the hospital, there was uh, <laughs> like a small military base for, for the FSA fighters. And we 
literally displaced them. They just ran away. They moved <laughs> because the hospital was there. And she's like, oh, it's too dangerous to leave our weapons next to you. You just move. <laughs> just to go back a little bit to describe your own backgrounds, you studied medicine where? I studied medicine in the Faculty of Medicine in Aleppo, Aleppo University, starting in 2005. Uh, graduated February 2012. My last year, when usually practicing in the university hospital, so I was participated in, in the uh, demonstrations at the university, the one that you've seen in the beginning of the film. Right. I graduated February. Decide, basically, my main dream just to travel to Germany and uh, train as a neurosurgeon. So, but I decided like, okay, I will stay in the country until Assad is down for a few, maybe months, <laughs> and then go to Germany. But here we are. Now, what is your background in filmmaking? How did that begin for you? Where um, and when? I was filming myself in house like every other people around the world. You filmed yourself at home? Like, okay. <laughs> You, so you didn't go to film school and study film? No, no, no. You didn't? I was, uh, I did economics. And then I was in the university when the revolution started. So I was, the first demonstration, the second, third one, uh, we've started, like uh, many people in the protest, uh, filming what was happening. Okay. Because we felt that this is something very important. And the regime was... When did that start for you? When did you feel the urge to start documenting what was happening around you? Uh, like, I think the third... Protest, I joined, uh, start like filming with my phone. And then after maybe like other four protests, I started like filming before the, the protest and with some people asking them about what they feel. And at that time, you can't show any face of these people. So like most of these interviews was like, like from here to down, right, right, right. <laughs> which is like, it's not working for anything. When did you get your first camera? The first camera I had, it was the first uh, scene when you've seen uh, the protest. Where did protest. the camera come from? Uh, it was, I'm sure, there, I'm sure yeah. there weren't a lot of camera stores open in Aleppo. No, there was like, it was really a crime to have a camera. So I got it from a friend. Uh, it was a Sony hand, handy one, very small. And I couldn't take it out from my bag. Uh, I was all the time like, putting yeah, in, into my bag all the time. And I make holes in many bags I have. <laughs> So that uh, protest was the first time I really like dared that I can take my camera and put it out because like this protest was like thousands of people. So I was like, I don't care whatever will happen. This is very important to be filmed. So I've took it out and start filming. And how many other people were doing that at the time? I don't think there was any camera. I'm like, because no one was like <laughs> thinking beyond what was happening. It was more about news on Facebook, but I was like... Okay, I love filming and I really enjoyed that. So I was, that's why my friend who has the camera, he didn't use it. He gave it to me because he thinks that this is stupid girl. She will film by me. This is too dangerous. Uh, I want to ask you, Edward. Uh, so w how do you interact with them for the first time where you get the footage? We were match made, to be honest, as I say. So when WAD revealed that she had this archive of over 500 hours, incredible archive. Revealed to who? Revealed to our colleagues at, because she'd done some stuff for Channel 4 News. So a couple of uh, bits of her footage had been seen on the news. And as you see in the film, you know, they'd got all these likes and shares on Facebook. But you arrived in London when? With the footage, uh, 2017, February. 
One month after we left Aleppo, I went to London because I was working at Channel 4 News in 2016, and we were nominated to some, like, awards. Oh, so you, oh, so you were getting stuff to yeah. them and distributing some, like, stuff. Like, just a little bit. Less than eight minutes. You had a presence in UK media, and then yeah. you wind up meeting with him. Yeah, yeah exactly. And what happened? Well, essentially, it was like a blind date. So we met each other and uh, just started talking and wad. And basically, we just had a conversation about what she wanted to do with the footage. And what. And, and when she started showing it to me, we just sat for eight days with her scrubbing through this stuff and showing just some a fraction of what she gathered. And I just knew that it was the most extraordinary archive of documentary footage that I was aware of. Because not only did it capture all the horror and the difficult times, as you've seen, but it just captured the full spectrum of human life there. The joy, the jokes. I mean, my experience of being in conflict zones is how much humor there is. That's what people do to keep themselves going, you know, to support right. each other. And you often only hear about all the terrible things they've done. You don't hear enough about what the best part of human beings in those situations. And yet this amazing woman had managed to capture it on film. And you know, you must know this, you know, normally when you start a project, the question is, right, we've got an idea, like how good will this be? But when I sat with her and we saw this footage, I was like, this should be amazing. Like, and it's our responsibility to do justice to these guys' stories and to what she'd managed to capture. Edward Watts, alongside Four Sama co-director, Wad Al-Khatib and her husband, Dr. Hamza Al-Khatib. The medical charity Doctors Without Borders, known by its French acronym MSF, is currently active near Idlib, the last Syrian rebel stronghold. It's where Wad and Hamza fled after militias drove them out of Aleppo. Dr. Joanne Liu just stepped down after six years as MSF's international president she and I talked about what it was like working in war-torn Chechnya. You are putting other people in danger. We were under attack on a regular basis, that's one thing. But the threat of being abducted was so huge. And we knew that if something were ever to happen to the MSF staff, then we would pull out. So we were praying for not. It was so nerve-wracking. A lot of fear. Yeah, and I hate that because I think, oh, this is so self-centered. And compared to what all those people are going through, come on, get a grip on yourself. The rest of my conversation with Joanne Liu is in our archives at heresthething.org. I'm Alec Baldwin. And this is Here's the Thing. When they began their filmmaking collaboration, Wad Al-Khatib handed her London-based collaborator Edward Watts over 500 hours of footage from inside Aleppo. And that wasn't all of it. I mean, she was still bringing out footage only a couple of weeks ago, saying, hey, why did we never use this? I was like, stop, please. I see the two of you like at home in bed, and she's like... Hamza, <laughs> wake up, Hamza. Exactly. Actually, it, like, was, his, it was really <laughs> annoying. <laughs> because she but was, necessary, right? Yeah, necessary. She was filming everything, and since she's the wife, I can't say anything, so yes. okay, I just support you. I feel your pain. <laughs> and like, I always felt that whatever you think about will happen. So I want this attraction law and all of that. So I always was positive, like, we're, we're going to live. Nothing will happen to the hospital. Everything is fine. We're going to get victory. And what was always like filming like 
because she wants to capture everything whenever it happens. And I was always thinking, like, you're just terrifying me. I feel like I'm going to die now. Just please stop. I'm going to live. But it's interesting that in the film, you do get that sense and you don't want to project something. When did you shoot and when did you not shoot? Were there any rules? I don't shoot when the battery is empty. Right. So this is the only thing. Forget to charge it. Yeah. I was filming at the 2011 and 12, like normally as any other filmmaker could film. It's like things that he thinks that this is important. This is, could be something important. But then like in 2013, I was like more filming because I get the sense of that strange life. But then, like, suddenly we've been in the hospital for the first six months, and I was, like, shooting us, uh, like, in the massacre or eating or something. And then suddenly, like, two of the people who we lived with, they're just, like, being killed. And at that moment, I felt like every minute could be the last one, and it's so important for us to keep that. And I think even you said that one time that at that moment I felt like, no, we need all this life to be saved, whatever the situation was. And because really I felt that I could be killed now, so this is important. I didn't feel at at any footage I've got that there's something, it could be not important. You had cards, obviously digital cards that were files that filled up, and did you have problems uh, getting more and more supplies? Was it difficult? Or did you have a pipeline to get that stuff because of your relationship with the British television station? Yeah, the British television relation was in 2016, which is just the last year. But everything before was I was alone. And even when my relationship with them, they support me a lot that, like emotionally, <laughs> because they don't have any chance to get anything inside. But Aleppo was not a small city, and there there was a Turkish border which is opened. So there's a trade always. You have everything. You can buy a drone if you want to buy a drone. Like and you it, shot with a drone. Yeah, I shot. I could tell. Yeah. I thought, I, I thought, I thought I, I'm looking at the landscape thinking, I don't think there's any buildings that were tall enough for you to stand in the window to shoot those yeah, exactly. shots. So you shot with the drone. Yeah. Then you went and, and how did, did you go to Turkey? No, it, uh, I got it from also another friend who bought it before, but he didn't work on that. So the first like uh, 10 times I was just going with him, teach me how to, to do this. So also the footage that you've seen, it's not very good, actually. It's, this is like a little bit of what I could capture, which is good. And it's seen a lot of, like, mess of some things, like, where you can't see Did you see crash the drone. the drone a few times? Yes. Oh like, okay. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. Like, actually, I was very lucky that I did that last scene. And then the day after that, it was, like, didn't work. But also, like, there's very big problems always happened with, like, the laptop and the SD card and the uh, charger of this. And then... It's very, really, um, I don't know, but small things, but it's very... Did the power go out all the time? This is another problem, which you have specific time to do this. Or if you are in the hospital, there's, like, better than if you are at home. But it's all, like, for example, my my mic was damaged in one place, and there's one scene from that damaged uh, mic, but I don't have uh, any other one after this. So it was, like, a lot of obstructing things. But it's done in the end. Now, you're obviously, you're a physician, and you stayed because you felt an obligation to your community? Exactly, that's what happened. Because we, we had a chance to leave Sema with my parents in, in Turkey before going back to Aleppo. But the first thing that came to both of our minds, that what life this child will have, like if she just grew up away from her parents, we might be killed or we might be sieged for five years and she will just grow up with her grandparents for five years, 
So we just like thought that we'll just stay together as a family. Whatever we were facing, we'll, we're facing it together. And also we felt, as you said, very responsible for to being part of this community. Like it's not when the hardest time we say like, oh, now we're taking like the safe side and it's just only you because we were part of them. And I feel like we're like traitor if we just take the safe side and just escape. But eventually you do leave. Eventually you do leave. Well, what's the breaking point? When do you say to yourself, I want to, let me have your opinion about yeah, that. Yeah. Like we didn't leave really. Like we were forced to flee out. And like Aleppo, when we left, there was no one at all. Like the Russian and Assad regime with the Turkish government and the UN, they decided that all these people who are in Aleppo will be displaced out and the regime will control this. So even this, there was no option for us to stay or not to right. stay. We were the last convoy who left Aleppo, and Aleppo now all under the regime control. We were struggling to stay, basically. All, all that we, we, we went through. the decision through, was just, made for you. Exactly. Just the final days, we were like sieged in around two square kilometers only, surrounded by the Iranian forces, covered by the Russian warcrafts, and... Then Turkey came to the militias that controlling our area that this is your only option. Either we'll come inside and we don't guarantee what the Iranians will do. You either get out or whoever wants to stay can stay. So basically all the fighters, doctors, activists, journalists, teachers with their families and children, they just went out. Now the woman who's cooking the rice, who wears the head scarf, uh, what is her name? Afra. She's, a, she's your friend? Yes. Uh, have you still remained in touch with them at all? Yeah, we no? stayed like every day. Where are they? They are in Turkey, in Gaziantep. And we were just like, last August we had holiday for three weeks. We spent it together. And they've like good, doing very well, but it's still like not that get good life in Turkey. It's a lot of racism and the kids not very happy at school. But they are like safe, doing yeah, very, very good. In, tur in Turkey? Yeah. Now, when... You immediately leave Aleppo. Where do you go? We went uh, to Idlib for two weeks. Idlib is uh, the last area out of regime control, where the Times article speaks about this hospital. The Russian bombing. Yeah. yeah. And we've we stayed there two weeks until we got a permission, because Hamza is a doctor, to, to cross the Turkish border uh, to see our families. And since that time, we've never went back. So, and you went to Turkey for how long? We stayed one year and a half until we moved to... London. And why London? Why? Basically, uh, we got a visa. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. the only, only place that got a visa. visa as well. <laughs> a lot, my friend. A lot. <laughs> now, when you get this footage and you sit down and you work with WAD, what were some of the biggest decisions you had in terms of what stays? I mean, because obviously, in a film like this, there's so much suffering and there's so much, and you, and you, and you have to put the right amount of yeah. that in the mix. What were some of the difficult choices? 500 hours, I mean, yeah. what did you leave out? Everyone had a particular scene that mattered a lot to them on the whole team that they wish we could have included. I mean, there was one scene that Hamza brought up right when we were about to lock the film. He said, why couldn't we put that in? And I was like, it's done. Which was an extraordinary scene. It's like a film from a, a, a scene from a Hollywood film where you see these guys walking down a street. They're just like very small and a sniper comes shooting at them and basically hits around their feet and they all go Two running. of you. Yeah. yeah. And they the, jump over a wall. This, this, uh, this like video was filmed by someone who we don't know and we met him like two years after that and he was like telling one of our friends that he has seen, he ticked from the window for 
people walking in that. And then my friend was like, show me this. And then they recognize us. So they give us this video. So even like, it's really strange things. And if someone tell you this, you will not like trust that's true. But when you see this, you can like see us both. There was so much, but I think the thing that we wanted to do was make a film that like you guys coming in off the sunny streets of like that East Hampton could go to Aleppo for an hour and a half, you know, and that you could be there and you could feel what these guys went through, understand it and bear it. Because in the earlier versions, you know, some of the cuts that we did earlier on, we showed it to our friends and family and they were overwhelmed because it went too dark. And so one of our big things was getting the movement between the light and the dark so that when, you know, when you'd been hammered, you had a moment where you could just draw breath, where we just had an uncut shot of Sama just being amazing, <laughs> where you could just settle down and think, right, there is still good and life in the world. We've really tried to, f to um, find a way to like give the right reflection of the true experience because like after everything we went through we're still like very strong and very we still like stand and keep fighting for the for this as we were there and just like the true experience of this is not like people who've been like attacking in these places and then in the end they are really uh, lost or really uh, not feeling good so in in that new structure which we did the last one you've seen now it's more about like going between the dark and light and giving the people the understanding like why we stayed and just how much hope there was i mean that was the thing you know after all these guys have been through when i met them for the first time and got to know them you just felt how much hope they had how much they look back on this experience actually is an important one and a positive one in their lives despite the way it ended and that was so important to convey because there is always hope Frankly speaking, I've lost hope because basically we tried everything. Like I've, I've done a petition that was signed by 800,000 people in, in different countries demanding the world leaders to, to interfere. I've done so many, like I can't, countless interviews with media, now with this film. Now I think it's in our hand just to save the narrative for the future, hoping that one day accountability will happen. And... Assad now has, is controlling 80% of Syria, and that's it. So the only thing is just to keep the awareness, keep talking about it. There is countless war crimes that has happened. There are countless witnesses, and one day accountability should happen. Uh, uh, your Syrian heritage is obviously important to you. How do you keep that alive for your daughters now that you're living in London? Like, she knows very well we, where she is from. And this is the first thing I was like, where are you from? And she said, like, Syria and Aleppo. I've shown her some of the wedding scene and her relationship with Naya, for example, which is Naya, the little daughter, which she is in the film too. Uh, we've tried any a lot now to keep speaking Arabic in, at home so they can still, like, feel the atmosphere. Uh, she can see a lot of pictures on the wall and a lot of things related to Syria in our ho home. The main thing, not only for Sema, but all the, we hope that this film will do for all the next generation to save the narrative, save the history of what, ha what really happened in Syria. Because till the moment, most of the news, most of the reports are about ISIS. Most of the uh, UN and WHO statements was all in passive voice that, that hospitals were bombed. There was like civil war in Syria, those like, killing each other and all of that. So we hoped from this film for Saman, for everyone, just to save for the next generation, 
that what happened in Syria was a revolution, was peaceful people trying to claim their rights. And they were faced with the hardest attacks by all the evil <laughs> triangle in the world, like Russian, the regime, the Iranians. And that's what we hope when she grew up, she will know exactly where she's coming from. Is there another film about the life you've made now? No. No. No, no, no. no. Your husband no. just won't stand for I it. I hope not. Don't point that camera at me. No, really. We What we're trying to do more now with the rest of the footage that I have, it's more about trying to build a basic um, like place for them to be used in some low suit for court against the regime and the Russians. Co-director Edward Watts. Hamza Al-Khatib, Wad Al-Khatib. Go ahead, what were you going to say? Sorry, just before everybody goes, people need to get motivated to do something. And we're trying to use the incredible reaction to help make a difference in Syria. We're launching a campaign called Action for Sama. Our simple message that we're beginning with is stop bombing hospitals. That's our tagline. We could use your help. So please follow Action for Sama. Help us in whatever way you can. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. That was Edward Watts, Wad Al-Khatib, and Dr. Hamza Al-Khatib. The website of their organization is actionforsama.org. Their movie is available streaming on PBS. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing is a production of WNYC Studios.